and uh, the, our choir leading us in worship during that time. Well, I invite you uh, to open your Bibles with me uh, one last time to the book of 1 John. Uh, as I prepared you for last week, this is going to be our final sermon uh, in our series here. Uh, and as is usually the case when we come to these sorts of conclusions, I, my temptation, or at least I feel the need, to sort of retrace the, the winding road that has got us, that has led us to this point. Uh, but thankfully for you, I'm not going to have to do that now, uh, not at this point, and, and because as we approach you know, these, these final verses of John's little epistle, uh, what we find is that he really sort of retraces the steps for us. Um, earlier this week, Sam was writing a paper for one of his classes, and he was struggling to try to figure out exactly what to do with the conclusion, just exactly what the conclusion was supposed to be like. Uh, and I'll confess to you, as somebody who has had to write way too many papers in my life, that I am not a very good conclusion writer either, so I was not any help to him at all. But I think John might be a help to both of us. You know, all that he has argued, all that he has taught throughout this little book, it comes to a head in these last verses. So that the book, it doesn't go out just with a whimper. It doesn't just fade away, but it goes out with a shout. A shout that once again drives home his purpose. The, the reason that he has written all along the, the way. The reason why he has said he was writing in the first place. You'll remember, he has wanted to give his readers assurance. Assurance that comes not simply through you know, a warm and fuzzy feeling, not just through a shot in the dark, but a, an assurance that comes through knowledge. It comes through what they know, what they have known from the beginning. What Jesus taught them and what they have heard through the apostles. He wants them to know these things so that they can live with assurance. A rock-solid, foundational assurance. And so today, he gives us this sort of final barrage of truths. And some of these truths are familiar to us. They're truths that we have covered all along the way. Some of them are going to be somewhat new to us. But whether they are new or whether they are old, what John wants us to have here is truth. He wants us to have biblical, foundational truth, and he wants us to have knowledge so that we can articulate these truths and that we can rest our lives on them. So, as we move through this today, my challenge to you, even is to ask the question, do I know these truths? Am I resting in them, and can I articulate them to people outside of the church? Do I know these things well enough to be able to say, this is what I believe? Well, with that question in mind, let's look at it together. Actually, let's read the text first. Sorry, I'm getting way, way, way ahead of myself here. So, so 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 
And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, it is your faithfulness and your wisdom, and it is your kindness uh, that has led us to this point, led us throughout this study. And so now, as we come to its end, uh, Lord, we pray that your faithfulness and your kindness and your wisdom would teach us today. Uh, Lord, it is our prayer uh, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in us in this time, leading us to a deeper knowledge and a deeper love for you. Uh, and we ask it for your glory, and we ask it in the name of our Savior. Amen. Well, um, as you know, I have spent a lot of time over the course of the last few months uh, preparing for all the various seminary and, and presbytery exams that I've been uh, faced with. Um, and I want you to imagine this morning that when I, it came time to take those tests, uh, I want you to imagine that, that I answered uh, by giving uh, the opinions of others, the opinions of others who, who may or may not have known what they are talking about. For instance, let's say they asked me to define justification, which they did. Uh, what if I would have answered that? Well, you know, I saw on Twitter or X or whatever it's called, I saw on social media someone who said justification was, and then I, I said whatever they said. How do you think that would have gone over? I can tell you how it would have gone over. Not well. And there's two reasons for that. One, as we all know, Twitter or X or whatever it's called is not a great source for truth. I mean, if, I was, if it was Paul's Twitter, or if it was Calvin's Twitter, I might be okay. But otherwise, I shouldn't be looking for a lot of truth, truth that I, I want to stake my ministry on, truth that I want to stake my life on, on social media, right? The second reason why it's important uh, to not answer with other people's opinions is because they weren't looking for other people's opinions, right? They wanted to know what I knew. They wanted to know what I believed. Even if those other people had been correct, even if they had been right, that wasn't the point of the exam. I wanted to make sure that I knew the truth, that I knew godly, biblical, God-honoring truth. Now, as you will recall, throughout this book, that, again, that's what John has been concerned with. Those two ideas, knowledge and truth. Do we know? And can we articulate it? And that's what he's going to do for us again here today. And so that's what I want us to consider. That's what I want us to look at. And so the first thing in this passage I would have you uh, note is the truth about prayer. And you see it there in verses 14 
through 17. Now, uh, when we begin to think about foundational truth, uh, it may be surprising to us that, that John would end with prayer. That, that, that would be the way that, that he kind of lets the book go out. But, but I think he does it for a very important reason. And it's this, what we believe about prayer, what it is, how it works, all of those things, it says a lot about what we believe about God and about our faith and who he is. And you see that there as he really begins to get into it. And there's several things that I want you to note. And the first one may seem rather obvious to us, but who is it that John calls us here to pray to? Of course, it's God, right? And that's important to note for, for two reasons. One, we aren't praying to the dead. We're not praying to the saints. We're not praying to the angels. We're not praying to Paul. We're not praying to Mary. No, the only proper recipient of our prayers, the only one who can answer them, is God. Now, to be sure that this point would probably be more... Um, have more emphasis for our Roman Catholic friends than it does for most of us as Protestants, but it is worth noting. And it also leads us to the second reason why knowing who we pray to is important. And to simply put it, it's because we pray to God. This is not a man or a woman that you are coming before, just like you come before your friends or your boss or whoever. This is not a genie in a bottle that we just list all of our hopes and our wishes to. No, this is the God of all creation, the holy and righteous God who angels hide their faces from. This is the one whose voice shook the foundation of the heavenly temple, whose presence on Mount Sinai terrified the people of Israel. They couldn't even touch the mountain, because it was so holy. This is the God who is the all-consuming fire, according to Hebrews chapter 12. This is who you and I pray to. And that knowledge should guide how it is that you and I come before him. Friends, the, the reality is, and we often miss this, to pray to God in some ways is a fearful thing. What right do we have to stand before him? What right do I, as a sinner, have to come before the God who made all things, the God who is holy? The truth is, is I don't have any right. Yet notice here, as John continues on, notice that, that he calls us not to bring our prayers timidly, uh, not to, to wonder if God will even hear them. No, he calls us to bring them with confidence. This is not a, a shot in the dark. This is not a, a useless praying to the ceiling. He says, come with confidence. Now, given all that we've just said about who God is and who we are, how can that be? How, how can we sinners have confidence before the Holy One of Israel. Well, the foundational reason, and it's one that we're going to come back to at the end, so I'm just going to kind of touch on it now in passing, is that as, again, the author of Hebrews points out, we have a great high priest. 
one who has granted us access to, to the very throne of grace, access to mercy and grace in our time of need. Friends, if there is mercy and grace to be found for you and I, if there is uh, an audience with God that we can secure, ultimately, if there is any confidence at all in prayer, the only foundation, the only reason we have that is because of Jesus. It's because of our Savior. He grants us access to the Father. But notice, even as we come resting in our Savior, John says there is a way that we can pray where we can know that He hears us. Not only that that we can know that He hears us, but we can know that He will give us the things that we ask for. Now how is it that we can have that sort of assurance, that sort of confidence? Well, he tells us there in verse 14. He says, if we come asking according to his will. Now look, this leads us to the obvious question. If we are to pray according to God's will, what is God's will and how do we know it? How do we find what that will is? Well, if you were with us Wednesday night, uh, then you know that this was the subject of our study then. And so again, we won't do too much here, but just remember, Uh, When we are seeking God's will in prayer or otherwise, what we are not trying to decipher are the things that he has chosen to keep hidden from us, his hidden will. In other words, we are not trying to, nor are we tasked with, seeking the things in his providence he has yet to reveal to us. To put it simply, we don't have to know the future to pray effectively. Praying according to his will is praying according to the principles, the truths he has revealed to us in Scripture. You know, when we pray according to the Lord's Prayer, whether we pray the Lord's Prayer itself or whether we take up those petitions and we pray them in our own way, when we pray in that manner, we are praying in the way that he calls us to. When we take up the Psalms as our own prayers and we pray them back to God, we are praying in the way that he has revealed to us. When we pray in accordance and for the things that God loves, most of all, when we pray, Lord, your will be done, which is the the best and most effective and always effective prayer, when we pray that way, we can be sure, we can have confidence that he hears us and confidence that when he hears us, he responds. Now look, does that mean that we only pray for the things that that are revealed to us in Scripture? Are our jobs, or our struggles, or our particular circumstances, are they off limits to God? The obvious answer and the right answer is no. The, The Psalms prove to us that God wants us to bring everything to Him, all of our lives. And Jesus says as much Himself. My point is, is that it's Scripture that guides what we bring and how we bring it. And it's also Scripture that guides how we expect God to answer our prayers. Now look, before we we move on to the next part of this, I just want you to note how amazing this is. I want you to note what a, a privilege we have in prayer. You know, we live in a world where people always seem to be looking for someone to listen to them, someone to hear their, their voice. 
whether it is a parent or a spouse or a political party or a religious guru, they want somebody to hear them. What John tells us here is someone does hear us. And it's not just another person down the street. It's not the person just next to you in the pew. The person who condescends, who, who, who lends his ear to hear our lisping, as Calvin would say. It is the God of all creation. He invites you to bring all your mess with you. To, to lay it all before him. To lay it all at the foot of the cross. To lay it all at the foot of his throne. God Almighty calls you to pray to Him, and then He calls you to pray with confidence. Again, what a privilege we have. You know, we sing that in that old hymn. What, what a privilege it is to sing, to pray to God. What a shelter we have in the midst of change and trouble to know that I can bring my needs to the One who holds it all in the palm of His hand privilege it is to come into his presence. Now, before we move on, note that there is one prayer particularly that John points out to us, one that we can be sure God hears, and it's a prayer that fits so well with the rest that he has said in this book. It's a prayer for our brothers. You know, over and over again, he has called us to love one another well, and he says that one of the ways that we do that is to pray for one another, particularly when we are struggling with sin. You know, prayer often, at least for me, I don't know about you, prayer often becomes just a, a running list of what I need, right? I come to him and I say, God, I need this, and I need this, and I need this, and I need this, and I need this. Amen. Uh, John turns us away from that sort of prayer. Uh, he says, look, this is, like all things, this is not about you. But you can come now and pray for your brother. Pray for your sister who is struggling with sin. And this is something we certainly see Jesus do really throughout his ministry, but particularly in the last 24 hours of his ministry. Think back to the upper room uh, in John 17. Remember, he has this high priestly prayer, and he prays for whom? He prays for his disciples. He prays even for us, those who are to come, that God would keep them that he would keep them and sanctify them in truth. Keep them from the evil one, right? Or what about when Jesus foretells Peter's denial? He says, Satan ha has asked to sift you like wheat. But what did Jesus do? He said, I have prayed for you. And then on the cross, uh, what is his prayer for those who have put him there? What is his prayer for those who are shouting, crucify him, even in those moments? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even as he suffered unjustly, our Lord prayed for sinners. He loved them well, and that's the call that John gives us here. Pray for those who are sinning. Pray for those who have wandered or who have strayed. Pray that God would bring them back, that he would give them the strength and the perseverance to continue on in their walk with him. Friends, it's one of the ways, maybe the best and most productive way you and I can love one another. And it's one of the means, it's sort of an amazing statement here, what, what John says. 
You know, it's one of the means that God uses to bring people back. It's, you know, it's, it's clear here that it is the prayers of these people that have an effect in the lives of these who are sinning. Now, again, God is a God of means, and prayer is a means that he uses to accomplish his ends. And so our prayers are effective. They, they have um, value in God's providence and the way that he acts in the lives of those who have wandered away. So uh, we are to pray for others. It's a, it's a sure prayer that we can pray, that we know that God will hear one that he will answer. Now, last thing here. I've said all of that without addressing the obvious elephant in the room. These two phrases, a sin that leads to death and a sin that does not lead to death. Now, as you can imagine, um, the truth of these verses is that they are difficult and there has been much ink that has been spilled with a lot of varying opinions. Um, But as is always the case when we come to passages like this, our best bet, the, the best way for us to try to get some clarity on them is to let Scripture interpret Scripture, and particularly, if we can, let context interpret our, um, the interpretation that we're going to, to take with these verses, okay? And so for John, what does he seem to have in mind, given all that he has said in the last four chapters, or four and a half chapters, what does he have in mind with these two statements? Well, I think a sin that does not lead to death would be a sin for which forgiveness, obviously, is possible. A sin that a person confesses, that they repent of their sin. They look to Jesus, right? They turn from it, they look to Jesus, and God is faithful and just to forgive that sin. If you turn back, you don't have to. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins, okay? So a sin that does not lead to death. It's a sin that we are convicted of, that we confess before God, and he's faithful to forgive us. Then we come to a sin that does lead to death. Uh, And and the one thing we can say for sure is that this is unrepentant sin in a person's life, a sin that they are unwilling to repent of. We can also say with a, a pretty good bit of assurity that it is also one that is in line with these things that John has warned us about. Things like rejecting the person in the work of Christ. Continued and persistent disobedience to God's commands. Or even an unwillingness to love him or to love his people well. These are the sins of the spirit of the Antichrist. Right, That's what John has said throughout his book. And these are the sins that, if left unrepentant, lead to death. Now, let's back up and notice that that while I have presented that last statement very much in a black and white terms, uh, life is, is rarely that black and white. So we need to be cautious with our judgments and our actions when we consider these two statements. These sins, they do lead to death, but we don't always know how God will act or when he will act. The Apostle Paul is a prime example of this. He was committing some of these sins, denying Jesus, and yet the Lord was gracious and kind to convert him on the road to Damascus. And so my point to you is when we are in doubt, 
always, let's pray for people, right? That, that is the, the key point here. Pray for those who are sinning. Now, to be sure, and Hebrews 6 confirms this as well, there is sin that, that can get to a point where our hearts are so hardened that it's impossible to come back from. But again, we don't know where that point is. And so our goal as Christians is always to pray for sinners. So, the first truth here. Pray, pray, and pray. Pray in accordance with God's will. Pray with confidence knowing that he hears and that he will answer us. That's a long first point. We've got two more to go. And I said we were going to finish today. And so let's see what we can do with this real quick. Secondly, notice the truth about assurance. The truth about assurance, and it's there in verses 18 through 19. Now again, we, we said this, but this is in some ways John's primary focus in writing to us. He wants us to know who we are, how we are to act accordingly as God's people, and he wants us to know what to believe so that we may be strong, that we may be unwavering in our assurance. Assurance in who was born, the one who was born of God. Assurance that that one who was born of God, Jesus Christ our Lord, that he protects us and that he keeps his own. Notice, that's the, the thrust of what John says there in verses 18 through 19. That Jesus keeps his people. He keeps them from sin in the first half of verse 18. How can we hope to avoid sin in this life? He says, everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Friends, I don't know about you, but I look at my life and I think, I keep on sinning. It keeps happening. What hope do I have in the midst of all of that when I still fail continually before our God? Friends, the hope is in Christ. That he who has begun a good work in us, in me and in you, he is faithful to complete it. Sanctification and glorification and perseverance, these are his works just as much as justification is his work. He doesn't just save us and say, here you go, finish this out. No, he walks with us. He keeps us every step of the way. He keeps us from sin. He, he forgives us. Or he convicts us of sin. He is the one who keeps us. Not only that, but notice here, he protects us from Satan. Like a shepherd guarding his flock, Jesus keeps the, the evil one from us. Uh, when Satan tempts us, uh, Jesus is true, and he is there to give us strength. He is there to give us a way out. When Satan accuses, Jesus is there to say, this is who you are. This one is mine. This one is one I have shed my blood for. He is righteous. Righteous in my sight. When Satan would harm us, when he would shoot his arrows at us, Jesus is there to fight for us. He, he is the conquering warrior king, a better Gideon, a better Samson, a better David. You know, you see that story when David fights Goliath. What is that all about? It's pointing us ahead to somebody else who's going to fight for us. Somebody better. Dave, uh, Jesus is going to fight. He does fight for us. He protects us from Satan. And then finally, when this world with devil fields uh, threatens to undo us, 
when we are run down, when we are overwhelmed, when we are up to our eyeballs in worries and in troubles, He, our Savior, He keeps us. He assures us that, that we belong to Him. He assures us that nothing, nothing in all of creation can separate us from His love. Not troubles, not angels, not ourselves. Nothing can separate us from what He has done. His love towards us. He assures us there in verse 13 of eternal life with Him. He points our eyes ahead. Friends, in Christ, in Him alone, there is real foundational assurance. Assurance that will not fail. And it's assurance, thirdly and finally, because we know the truth about Christ. We know the truth about who he is. If John was going to conclude his book in any way, he has picked the best way to do it. Verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come, and he has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God, and he is eternal life. We know the one who became incarnate, born of his mother Mary, laid in a manger because there was no room for him in the end. The one who angels and shepherds and wise men all came to see and to bow down and to worship. We know the word who became flesh and who dwelt among us. The word who in so doing gave us understanding. Friends, if you want to know what God is like, look no further than John 1. Look no further than the truth of who Jesus is. To see the Son is to see the Father. God has spoken, and He has done it through His Son. And in His Son, He has also united us to Himself. Jesus is the Christ. He, he is the, the Messiah, the seed of Abraham, in whom all the nations of the have now been blessed by faith we have been united to him forever through his death and his resurrection all our hope lies in him hope for obedience hope for salvation hope for eternal life and we know that that is hope that will not fail it's a hope that is an anchor for our souls because lastly here notice Jesus is God he can't say it any more clearly than he says it there in verse 20. He is God and he is eternal life. As God, he never changes. So our hope, it never wavers. Because it lies in one who is the same yesterday and today and forever. Friends, this is the heart of the matter. If Jesus is God, then there is nowhere else to turn. There is no other hope. His is the only name given under heaven by which we may be saved. He is the only sure ground. He is the only cornerstone. And so, as we bring all of this to a conclusion, why would you go anywhere else? That, that's, that's John's thrust. He's dealing with these false teachers who have brought in all of this false doctrine. And he wants to say to them, why would you go anywhere else than what you have heard from the beginning? Why would you, as verse 21 implies, 
chase useless idols, idols that will not satisfy you, idols that will only let you down. Jesus is the only one who has the words of life. Besides him, there is no other. And so it is he who we rest in. It is he who we cling to, knowing that even as we cling to him, he clings to us. And it is he who we trust with our whole hearts and our whole souls and our whole lives. Friends, that's, that's the truth that John would have us know. It's the truth of all of Scripture. And I ask you here as we conclude, is it the truth that you are resting in today as we pray together? Father God, uh, we thank you for your kindness. Uh, we thank you for your faithfulness and for your wisdom as we've moved through this little book. Uh, we thank you for the ways that it has pointed us uh, to Jesus, most of all, uh, who is our only hope, who is our only sure foundation. And Lord, it is our prayer that, that as we consider the things, the truths that he has revealed to us about our faith, the way that we are to act, what we are to believe, the way we are to, to consider sin in this world, uh, that you would apply these truths to our hearts uh, so that we might live as your people, uh, kingdom people in a lost and a dying world, and that we might have sweet and confident and unwavering assurance. Lord, that's what you offer to us. Offer it to us in Christ. And so may we all trust in him and rest in him alone. And we ask it in his name. Amen. As we conclude our service now, we invite you to sing him.